Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm John McEnroe. I'm Bjorn Borg. This is Martina Navratilova. I'm Mats Wilander. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is John Weir, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. And welcome to the Tennis Podcast, the 400th Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph and with Eurosport that myself and David Law, who sits alongside me in a pub in Marylebone, have recorded. We've reached the big 400, David. <laughs> it's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> Crikey. Imagine if you'd have said uh, in May 27th, 2012, whenever it was, uh, yeah, we'll still be doing this. You say this. whenever it was, yeah. it was citing the exact date Have burned checked. on your memory. Did check that one. Uh, imagine if you'd have gone back and said, yeah, in six, in six years' time, uh, we'll be doing this for a 400th time. I don't, I don't think I, I don't think we would have got through the first one. You'd have said, I'm not doing that 400 times. And David is always encouraging our listeners to go back and listen to the back catalogue yeah. on, uh, on social media. And I always cringe at that because... Um, as proud as we are of, of how far we've come, it was it was quite a different podcast six years ago, wasn't it? And by that, I mean significantly less good. Um, so hopefully, uh, I've uh, I've set the bar pretty high there. We've got to produce a good podcast yeah, here, and it's it. going to be a very special uh, our third of the Ask David and Catherine series, brought to you uh, this time in association with John and Leah, uh, who are our... Well, actually, it's Leah that's the very special guest editor, isn't it? Because John bought Leah the guest editorship uh, for her birthday? For her birthday, yeah. which is a lovely, lovely gift. That is love, isn't it? True love. <laughs> you know, buy them True a tennis love, David, podcast as we've special. discussed, is uh, paying tribute to your wife's mothering skills via billboard. Of course, Yes. Sorry, I forgot that. This is the second best way of doing it. Yeah, Something to think about for the future, John. But in the meantime, uh, we will be answering. So they are, it's a combination of Leah's questions and listener questions that Leah has edited. Correct. Uh, so they're not too hard, are they? <laughs> they're not. They're, they're not general knowledge or oh, no. you know nonverbal reasoning or anything. We could Can throw, you just get throw in a few for for uh, uh, um, just for fun. Uh, but no, they are. I'm pleased to report, David. They are tennis-based questions. Phew. In keeping with the general theme of the podcast. Yeah. So, um, Leah has very helpfully, she's divided, she's sub-categorised the questions, David. I wonder why you were so pleased. It's a, it really is a, a marvellous list of questions. I love nothing more than a brilliant admin. And Leah, you've done a cracking job. Uh, so, uh, our first category is draw sizes and seeding. Very pertinent of the moment topic. Uh, and the first one, which is one of Leah's own, would it give a fair opportunity to up-and-coming players if tournaments had fewer seeds and the ranking system gave bonus ranking points for beating other players ranked above them or if generally the bonus points were determined by the rank of the beaten opponent 
which would also honour the importance of high-ranking players facing each other in early rounds. I thought I read once that such a ranking-related scoring system used to exist. Yes, Leah, you're right. Both of those things have existed, both the points for beating uh, high-ranking players and also the, the fewer seeds. We used to have 16 seeds at Grand Slams. Um, the Australian Open has announced that it will be returning to 16 seeds to seeds at Slams from 2019. Yes. So we will have a test case. Yeah. Uh, I, I like both of those things. I have to say, when I was uh, a very young uh, 22-year-old uh, coming into tennis for the first time, that's pretty much how it worked. And I've just been looking back on the rankings and point system from from the first year that I worked full-time in tennis, which was 1998. So you're going back 20 years. And they used to have bonus points for beating a player of a certain ranking. So if, and first of all, whereas now we have 2,000 points for a Grand Slam title and 1,000 for winning uh, one of the Masters, ATP thousands, as, as the name would suggest, back then... It was 750 for a Grand Slam title. It was 370 for what used to be known as one of the Mercedes Super 9 tournaments, which are the Rome and uh, Miami and all those sort of tournaments. And then if you went back to what are now the 500s and the 250s, they were called the Championship Series and the World Series tournaments, and they used to dish out about 300 and 250. So actually, the higher ranked tournaments now of sort of the, the 1000s and the the slams have elevated i would say have separated themselves points wise more so from the 500s and the 250s compared to what they used to be and in addition to that they used to give a player who beat a world number one 50 bonus points if you beat somebody ranked between two and five you get 45 and six to ten was I think about 30, 35, something like that. Maybe I did ask a non-verbal reasoning question. Yeah. This is like... So there you go. I've got all <laughs> the stats at my disposal. But that's what they used to do. And, and I used yeah, to particularly... mind. I used to particularly <laughs> like the beating a, a world number one, for instance, that you got 50 points. I mean, that you know, that's, that's mm. not a, an insignificant sum of points. And you could just meet a world number one in the first round, get a big upset, and there was that much more on it as would, a would a world number two also get the bonus points yeah. for beating a world number one? Anybody would get a, that bonus for beating a world number one. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it wasn't about relative ranking, it was an absolute... Okay. That's right. So it was... Uh, I, I really liked that, personally. I, uh, back when, when I was on the circuit, the, it just used to feel like there was more on it if you got that degree of success. You, you know, it feels like you should get more points and do you know, for, for beating somebody higher ranked. Really. Do you know why they did away with that? That Well, it all stopped in the year 2000 when they changed the ranking system altogether. And just and to be clear, we're talking just about ATP here, aren't we? Yes. WTA have had their own history of That's ranking right. situations. In yeah. the year 2000, the ATP decided, very controversially at the time, to change the whole ranking system completely. And what they did was they, they decided, right, rather than having this rolling ranking of 12 months, um, where you accumulate over that period and then when you get to the tournament again it knocks that previous years off and adds the most current one on you would start at zero in January a bit like the the Formula One racing and you start at zero you play your events and you would accumulate points till the end of the year and crown a number one at the end of the and year thus was born the race that was the ATP Champions race we use a version of that obviously to find out who the eight players are uh, in London at the ATP finals and the same on the the, the, the WTA side but what they also did is they hid the ranking system because they still needed that in order to seed players and have an entry system into the tournaments. Because otherwise, how do you decide who gets into the tournaments? Because I remember the first week of the year, in the year 2000, Fabrice Santoro, I think he won Doha, or, or, or one of the first weeks of the year. And there were newspapers reporting that Fabrice Santoro is the world number one. And because they just didn't understand that actually... They are, they are framed and up on the wall of Fabrice <laughs> Santoro's house somewhere. Yeah, and, and at the end of that year, because the ATP was so desperate to promote this race, they actually refused to give out what the rankings were, i.e. what the entry system numbers were, because they didn't want you to know that. And they 
had a situation whereby Marit Safin won the US Open in September of 2000. Big celebration, obviously. Then there's this big race at the end of the year. And there was a period where Marit Safin got to world number one on the old ranking system, and that just wasn't recognised. He, he, he never didn't got get his, a cake. Didn't get his moment in the sun, didn't get a cake. And, and, you, so, and you ended up with, I think it was Gustavo Curtin who finished the year, I think it was him, at the end of the world, as, uh, at the end of the year as, as the champion of the ATP Champions race. He won the, the, the tournament in, was it him who won the tournament in Lisbon that year? I think it was. And so Marit Safin never got his moment as being world number one. And it really wound him up frankly um and a couple of years went by they realized that this just doesn't work and so they went back to basically the old system so they still used this race to work out who was qualifying for the end of the year but the ranking system was brought back to the forefront and so yeah poor old Marek Safin never got celebrated for getting to world number one 16 seeds though what do you think of that I like it uh, I, I, as at, at just slams, just by you know? coincidence, I was having this debate with my dad the other day, and um, my my conclusion on sort of need, not selling it to him, but, but the bottom line I think is that you get a better first overall. It leads to a better first week, but a riskier situation in the second week. You're, you're more liable to lose seeds, so I guess it, it, that that's that's the toss up you have to make. I'm I'm a lot more for the rankings changes and the bonus points for beating higher ranked players. I'm a bit on the fence about 16 seeds. I want to see how it goes at the Australian Open. I'm unconvinced either way, which is boring, isn't it? I don't have a strong Well, feeling. I like them. So, you know, you've got a strong argument for me. No fence sitting from the law. There you go. Our aggregate verdict is 16 seeds. Yay. There you go. Yeah. Uh, very, very quickly, another one on the uh, subject of draws and seeding. We've got a lot to get through, but just quickly, David, uh, should there be a sam- sim- uh, standardised draw size for similar grade events? Because Indian Wells and Miami both use 96 draws, whereas the Masters, um, the rest of the Masters have all different sizes of draws from 64 down to 48. You have the same variation, other level event. Uh, I, I don't think so. And, and actually, I think I would bring out in more variation. I would love to see a tournament, and I don't understand why this doesn't happen. I don't, maybe, the, maybe the tours don't allow this, but wouldn't it be great to have a tournament where you don't have any seedings? Where you just say, yeah. right, let's just draw this one. Our selling point for this tournament is, let's just draw it out of the hat. Let's get Roger Federer against Rafael Nadal first round. Imagine, imagine that. You know, just just for the luck of the draw. Make what it the heck? so, David. The yeah. Fever Tree Championships. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that one's got a bit of tradition. <laughs> but look, the, there is that. I mean, I remember back in 2007 when um, the tour brought in round robin for all all the events, or, or offered it to all of them, and you had um, 32 draws where you had several groups of three players it didn't go down well though did it well i mean i understood the point behind it they they thought that would be a way to keep players around longer big names etc but what they ended up doing is messing up the the numbers and uh and they didn't actually know who'd gone through one one tournament and and so you ended up with this it was a, it was a real pr disaster just a quick point on that very quickly um reading that question it did remind me of the situation we had at australian open this year where they had different draw sizes for the qualities of the men's and the women's um and that was that was brought to our attention because laura robson missed the cut whereas had it been the same draw size for the women's as the men she would have made it in um and that seems completely wrong Yes. I also want to have a, a, a wooden rackets only tournament. Can we do that? Yeah, we're going off piece now, David. But, this, but is asked, just, you know, this is just if David just, ruled the world. Just chucking stuff in. Uh, interactions with coach and umpires. Leah would like to know, do you think it's possible to say in general what makes a good player-coach relationship and how much we can really glean looking in through snippets such as coaching timeouts and press conferences? I think she's she's struck upon a really interesting point there, which is... I frequently feel like we just don't know what goes into a coaching relationship. We we draw all these conclusions and it's a great talking point for us, particularly when all the super coach thing was at its height. It's a wonderful talking point, but it's like, you know, marriages or any relationship, you know, you just don't know what goes on behind closed doors. And the majority of that relationship is happening behind closed doors. And I think a good example of this at the moment is Garbina Muguruza dropping... Conchita Martinez and going back full time with Sam Sumik on the face of it on what we see on the evidence of her on court um, interactions with Conchita Martinez versus Sam Sumik on the basis of her results 
it seems completely nonsensical on the basis of what we from the outside seem. That decision seems nonsensical, but there has to be something. She's not an idiot. You know, she wants success for herself more than we want it for her. So there has to be something else going on behind closed doors that we don't see. So, yes, I think I, I think there are limits to, to how much um, we can say, Leah. And um, that's not very good because we love talking about it and speculating. Yeah. The, the other thing is people are different. And just because we might look at a an exchange, say, on court and sometimes... To take that example further, the exchanges between Garbini Magarutha and Sam Sumik are uncomfortable. He's He is talking to her, and most of the time she just is not visibly acknowledging a word he's saying, and it's just uncomfortable. I, I, and that's just my opinion as, a, as an observer from the side or commentating. Everybody has a different kind of communication between them as you say within relationships within friendships no there isn't one right way to do it um i would also point out and i've spoken to to a couple of coaches who've identified really big name players who've had incredibly good results who have what appears to be an a really successful relationship with their coach and it, and it is it's obviously works and yet that player doesn't socialize at all with that coach and they have their day-to-day job, they go to a tournament, but they keep themselves to themselves aside from that. And, they, and sometimes the player doesn't want to have anything to do with the coach as a, as a human being, uh, as a companion on the road, but as a working relationship, it, it functions effectively. Others absolutely need that coach to be their best mate. They're somebody that they can share the journey with and, and socialise with. Often, you know they'll be in a pub like we're in right now sitting across a table every single night of the week for weeks and weeks on end i mean i always would would think how can you possibly make that work unless you get on but you know oh God, it I'm takes not, all i'm not sure sorts, i like it? anyone enough <laughs> dogs only dogs i'd yeah. be prepared to spend that much time with um yeah yeah is it, it we'd love to know more wouldn't we about about a, all sort of, of that stuff. yes and no i, I think <laughs> yeah. if we lifted the lid I'd, I, i'm not sure i'd, I'd exactly yeah, like what could, i'm seeing could get a bit grim Who um knows? on sort of looking ahead and and um tennis now and in the future um we've got a question from uh well this is actually from charlie charlie the ferret's mum Right, Charlie. <laughs> uh, she would like Charlie's to know. Put her up to this. She would like to know our thoughts on how Wimbledon sell their tickets. I personally, she says, think it's the hardest slam to get tickets to. Are there channels for getting a ticket preferable to just putting them on sale, or does it disadvantage fans who can't spend time queuing and never get tickets in the ballot? Well, I touched upon this. I think it was actually in a Facebook Live we did from the queue um, last year. I, I, I do believe that. The Wimbledon queue is one of the most marvellous PR jobs in history. The fact that it's celebrated as this wonderful wonderful thing, a wonderful privilege to do. You know, when I was 16 and I queued for the first time, I thought it didn't cross my mind. I'm having to sleep rough to get tickets to, you know, the the, the, the sporting event that I've dreamed of seeing. Um I thought it was this immense privilege and it's a marvellous PR job because those are the facts. You are having to sleep rough to be just within, just to have a chance of getting tickets. And I don't think that's great. You know, not everybody can take two days off work, which is what it is to to be in with a chance. You know, what if you're, I don't know, we can get bogged up. What if you're a carer for someone or you're, you you know, there there are a million different situations and I, I don't think it's great. No, I don't think it's great. I realise it's it's as a result of supply being so deficient respective to demand. I get that. And the other slams don't have that same problem. The, the, the relative supply and demand situation is completely different than the other slams. I understand that. But I don't think we should celebrate in the way we do the fact that that's what you have to go through 
to be in just with a chance of getting tickets to Wimbledon, it totally disadvantages children. You can't have young children. You know, how many players have we talked, have we heard from saying, you know, that first moment I was inspired when I saw tennis live for, for the first time and I went to the US Open or I went to French Open, whatever. It's very difficult for young kids at that age when you're most susceptible to be completely inspired very difficult for them unless you're lucky enough to get tickets well, in the back ballot is, to be is, able to to go through that experience i 100 percent disagree two reasons one i think you know actually the ballot for an event like that that is oversubscribed that, that easily has more supply than demand that feels fair to me in a way just luck of the draw you know i, I quite like that um and it's I mean, not luck of the draw though is it it's not luck uh, the ballot, you the mean, ballots, rather yeah. than the queue. First okay. of all, well, that's your first point, isn't it? That there is a ballot, right? You you apply, you might get lucky, you might not. If that doesn't happen, yeah, you queue. And actually, two things. One, I, 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 I do quite like the idea that let's see how much you really want it, not how, how lucky you might get. There on... are plenty of people that really want it that simply aren't able. To, they're, they're not being able to queue is not a reflection of how much they want it. They simply aren't able to spend two days sleeping in a field. Well, isn't it a question of priorities? Not not if you're a carer for someone, or that that's the example I always well, use, but there are how, plenty how does, of situations. How does the carer get tickets and go anywhere then? Well, it takes an, maybe you can, maybe you can take one day off work, but taking an extra day, possibly two, sometimes two, for the, for the most coveted days... To sleep rough in a field. Yeah. What if you have a physical disability, David, and you're unable to sleep in a yeah, field? Yeah, that's a problem. I agree. Okay. I don't know what the I don't know what the situation is with that. Um, whether that's catered for or not, uh, I've no idea. Um, maybe it is. I mean, they do maybe have they do have tickets, for instance, for disabled people that are in wheelchairs. They um, do. So that may be catered for separately. To me, there's a magical element to it that you've touched on, um, which which I wouldn't want to do that. I share as well. I found it magical the first time I queued, but with the benefit of hindsight and looking at it um, on the basis of the facts, I now feel differently about it. My kids would think it was the most marvellous adventure. But they can't do it now. They can't. You would take your kids camping. Yeah. Like I say, they they would think the the process is the adventure. But you don't see kids as young as that in the Wimbledon queue. You don't. I don't know whether you, I don't know whether that's true. Well, we recorded. Let us know. At we recorded podcast. lots of podcasts. What's in the, the youngest queue? kid we you've recorded, ever taken? We recorded a number of Facebook lives from the queue last year, and I, I was struck by I was struck by how homogenous the whole crowd was. I didn't keep. I must admit, I didn't <laughs> was, look. You know, right, I'm going to look this year. And at tennis podcast, okay. what is the youngest kid you've ever taken in the queue, and how was it? Okay, we're. we're we're democratising that question. I'm curious to know, aren't you? Because we, we don't actually know for sure. You've said what you've seen anecdotally. I found it a very, very homogenous crowd. Yeah, well, yeah. I didn't really look at it, so I'm going to look at it next time, but I want to know. Noble Nathaniel asks, after Miami, the tennis world transitions to clay. Typically, a player's momentum or good form from the sunshine swing does not carry over into this next part of the season. Why? Should the surface switch be entirely to blame for that? It's a good point. It's a very good point, Nathaniel. And we never expect it to transition over necessarily. I suppose it depends who you're talking about. Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic seem to do just fine for a few years. Winning, you know, Djokovic won the, the Sunshine double and then went over and dominated clay. But he won everything. Yeah, he did. So that wasn't so specifically that problem, about that transition. Um, yeah, I mean, OK, so a good example here. Are we expecting, uh, as we record, we don't know... Uh, precisely how jo- uh, Del Potro has fared in Miami. He's in the semi-finals at this stage. He may, may well go on to do the double, but we know he's won Indian Wells do and know, done very well. Will he ca- will he carry that form into the clay, David? Because he likes say, the clay. I would say a bigger test is how Alexander Zverev gets on because I think talking about Del Potro, who's gone through some serious injuries and who's you know pushing thirty, um, is perhaps not the best reference points because he's nothing these days i know but you know a kid like like zverev who's okay how will zverev as we talk is is in the semi-finals of of miami who has a a game perfectly capable of doing well on clay is he going to suffer on that surface switch i would say probably i don't think so 
I don't think so. I think he. I mean, the the question mark. You don't is, think he'll suffer? You think he'll transition really. nicely? I think into he'll it. be fine. I do but, feel that. I mean, he's got. He's probably got Davis Cup, hasn't he, in the first week of April as well. So that's where you start getting the problems. It is. It almost, you almost think, well, how is this possible for these people to compete on all fronts? But generally speaking, I like the, the, the swings of surface between outdoor hard, go onto the clay, have that spell, then have a spell on grass, then go to the outdoor hards in summer. I quite like all this. Some of the tricky stuff is when you have clay again after the grass uh, uh, even though those are great tournaments it's just in terms of the the whole storytelling element to the circuit it, it it's a difficult one to explain where are those clay court tournaments leading to but i don't know switches uh, as long as as long as the swing is long enough so that a player can take a couple of weeks off if that player wants before going onto that surface Which then isn't i'm the all right with, it. with grass is it no, I mean, that's more difficult. It's better than it was because there's the extra week. But no, I mean, that's always been the, the big problem with the Craftscourt season being so short. Uh, Calvin Warner would like to know, after the slams, which event means the most to the players? Olympics, Davis Cup, one of the 1,000 events. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> we're probably going to end up giving you a fudge answer, Calvin, of different folks, different strokes. Um, yeah. I think there are plenty that would say Davis Cup still. Um, however, I think the situation changes are the, the situation we seem to have at the moment, you know, notwithstanding all the potential changes there are going to be, which we'll leave to one side, um, is that once you've got a Davis Cup, the desire for further Davis Cup seems to diminish considerably. Certainly for, so it, for some, yeah. It, 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 it's, it, it, the Davis Cup, it, it's, it's a tick in the box, isn't it? it, it it's, it's a badge of honour but it's not about accumulation of them in the same way that it is with Grand Slams and Masters 1000. the Olympics, I'm not convinced that people get that wound up about the Olympics until it's on. And then the moment they they get there, it suddenly becomes, or if they win a medal, I think it ends up being one of their career moments, regardless of whatever else they've done. I think that's a good point. And I wonder, you know, we had a lot of players pull out of the Rio Olympics, um, citing... Zika virus and various other things and I wonder if I think exactly as you say it's one of those things that in the lead up it's very easy to think oh that's completely inconvenient in my schedule it's only the Olympics not that bothered but actually I wonder you know watching Monica Puig win and watching Andy Murray win and that final with Del Potro and all of the fantastic matches and opportunities that it threw up I wonder if any of them regretted that decision in hindsight and a lot of people i think it also puts into perspective that a lot of people are entering the this davis cup weekend coming up i mean as you listen to it i think we've already had the davis cup um but it's very well represented and a lot of people are using it as an argument of oh why are we changing davis cup because of no top players playing when actually nadal has just signed up and all these other players have just signed up one element is that they need to play a certain amount of it in order to play and be eligible for the Olympics. And I'm sure that is a a, a carrot for them. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. On the subject of British players, we have a question from our, our dear, dear listener, Pavi G, who loves to challenge us. Oh, yes. Uh, he says, not much is said on the podcast. Likes about, to invite himself on, actually. He likes to, yeah. Not much is said on the podcast about the next gen of GB stars. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear the opinions of David and Catherine regarding the likes of Jay Clark, Gabby Taylor and Katie Swan and how far they think these guys can go. A similar question is coming from Matthew Turner as well. As British tennis seems to be in a good state at the moment with multiple players qualifying for the Sunshine Swing tournaments. Who do you see as the next young GB players to break through? And cheeky second question, do we think we'll see Laura Robson back in the top 100? Well, I think the reason we don't cover them is we try not to be too Brit-centric um, obviously, there is a slight element of that. We are, in, in case you haven't noticed, both British. Uh, but we try not to be too Brit-centric. And, and the, the facts are, as much as, you know, those three, Clark, Taylor and Swan, are posting decent results on Futures and uh, uh, and uh, Challenger match. You know, Jay Clark's had uh, a good win this week. But they haven't made any kind of impact um, on the international stage yet. So I think that's why we haven't given them much attention I, of those, I've seen Jay Clark play. I saw him in his final round qualies match at Wimbledon last year where he was two sets and a break up and ended up losing to a Ukrainian player whose name escapes me but ended up winning a couple of rounds at Wimbledon. Um, and uh, I was impressed with him. I, You know, I, I, I find it very difficult to assess sort of junior transitioning players because, of course, they've got glorious forehands, backhand serves. And, you know, often often one of the things that, that they need to improve on the most is movement um, and also shot selection. But in terms of his strokes, I thought they were lovely. You know, yeah. he, he's got the technique, um, but so much, so much of it is completely untangible at that stage. But he's posting some good results at the moment. Gabby Taylor, I've not seen play. And Katie Swan, I have seen play, but not for a couple of years. So I don't know how her game is transitioning uh, into senior level. David? Jake Clark, can- I've, I've spoken to Marcus Willis about. He's played doubles with him, of course. Did very well at Wimbledon last year. He speaks very highly of him. He, I mean, Jake Clark has got as high as 219 in the world. He's currently 265 in the world. I, I, I agree with you that the, the issue is, for people like us, who are certainly not, we're not ex-players, we're not, ex-co- we're not coaches, Certain play, people may be able to look at these guys on this circuit and think, wow, yeah, does that well, but that's a problem. Until we see them on the circuit that we're used to watching up against players that are in the top 100, that's our reference point. That's when we know how, how they stack up really because as you say you watch them on the court I mean when I was at that Shrewsbury event and you got players in the 400s and you're thinking well how are these two in the 400s in the world they both hit the ball really hard and really well and they move well and they're excited and they're pumped up why don't why aren't they on the main circuit and the jobbing around and trying to make a living it's because 
it, there is a difference, and you only really see that difference when they're up against that level of uh, of opponents. Uh, Katie Swan has recently been um, signed up by the agents that manage Andy Murray, um, which is an interesting development for her. I mean, there's certainly very good people who work there, so they believe in her. I always think that that's a, another little sign is which agent is interested in, in, in which player because these are often very good talent spotters themselves. Um, but she, she had an exceptional junior career for a while and then I know she dealt with some injuries and then it's that element of can you transfer it? Can your junior game cut it at the senior level? And, and uh, there are some players that just can't. So we, I, I don't know whether she can. And uh, Gabby Taylor, I mean, her results... Her consistency has been excellent. I know she. I think she withdrew uh, last night as we talked to you from her quarterfinal at 5-all. I, I had a little look at that scoreline. But she's had loads of good results. She's ranked about 175 in the world. Um, so good luck to her, you know. But it's, it isn't easy to, to get a really confident read on how these players will do. And as you say, we are occasionally accused of being too Brit-centric. I think we... I think we get it about right, but yeah, there is a re- that is the reason really why we don't forensically analyse the British results. And, and there, you've also got the likes, you know, Tim Henman didn't make any impact until at junior level or even in the transition. He sort of cropped up from nowhere. He wasn't tipped for the top in any way. So that is something that happens. So putting too much limelight on these people that show promise is um, not necessarily always a good thing. There's a guy called George Lofhagen. A uh, young guy, um, I think he's about 17, who I know Joe Jury has worked a lot with um, and thinks he's very good, but very, very early stages. And he was uh, a hitting partner. He was used as a hitting partner for a lot of the players at Wimbledon last year, which is obviously um amazing experience. Laura Robson, David, very quickly. Sadly, my answer to that on balance is probably not Laura Robson in the top 100 again. Yeah, which... I still find it hard to bring myself to agree with you because I, I know what she's capable of, and so do you. But you go back to when we first started this tennis podcast in 2012, and she, a couple of months later, went and beat Kim Clijsters and Lee Nahr at the US Open. I mean, two Grand Slam champions at the age of, what, 18? And the thought that that player is not going to make it back into the top 100, having properly tried for two or three years now. I don't know. I find that almost too hard to bear. Um, But is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously she's got the talent, and she's come back from... Because, I mean, she's been there before. She's been, what, 30-odd in the world? And then at that Australian Open that we were both at and we were getting excited talking about how she'd beaten Petra Kvitova. I mean, these are amazing players that she went toe-to-toe with and beat. It's really depressing, actually. Um, I know it's, it's not life and death and all the rest of it, and she seems as though she's happy in life more generally from from the sort of public posts she puts out there on Instagram, etc. But... I think it's a terrible shame that she... I mean, obviously, she's been incredibly unlucky. Let's not forget that. She's lost about three years of her career because of a wrist problem. And that may be the reason. But it, I doubt if it's the only reason because she has had time since then. The, there's, there are other deficiencies now, whether that's a question of work ethic, whether it's a question of just not having the right mind for it, panicking when she's in a winning position, whatever it might be. But it is... a a terrible shame that somebody of that level of talent who who won Wimbledon juniors aged 14 has not been able to make the career that she certainly looked as though she would be capable of making. We have some questions on the subject of Catherine and David. Oh, it's no. all going a bit meta. I'm off. <laughs> uh, the first one is from Leah, our guest editor herself. Uh, actually, no, it's from Leah, but, but no, it's from John... Her husband, via Leah. Okay. Uh, John wants to know if you were to compare each of your tennis playing styles to any player, active or retired, whom would you choose? Now, I don't know whether she's asking for us to choose for ourselves or for each of us to choose for the other. I know what would be more fun. <laughs> okay, let's go with what would be more fun. <laughs> 
well, there is no player, uh, active or retired, that I've ever seen uh, hit a serve that bounces before the service line. You say that, <laughs> but during the match that I commentated on last night, I tell you, last night I commentated on a match in which that exact thing happened. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, I think it Who was... Did it? it was it was in the Victoria Azarenka Sloan Stevens match, as we talked to you during the, the Miami tournament. It happened, and not even having seen the video evidence of what I did in our match uh, at the Royal Albert Hall, Anki Othavong immediately piped up, That's one of yours, isn't it, David? And I'm thinking, <laughs> You don't know how right you are. Um, and I, I was too, too shell shocked to, to admit it, but that, that, that is the case. So, um, who hit the serve? I can't remember. It was one of those right, two. Right, okay. Well, Nazarenko that's not very helpful. Stevens. Who so would it, you compare yourself to? Who would I compare myself to? I mean, I, 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 mean, I think David's a, a Monica Nicolescu. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you're... Ah, I love Monica Nicolescu. Stop your sniggering. Um, one of Mats Valander's favourite players. Um, you do self-describe, self-identify as a slice and dicer. Yeah, I'm a bit. <laughs> I'm a bit. I, I don't know how to do a forehand slice like that, though. Um, and, yeah, more recently, I've just been trying to absolutely belt the serve as hard as I can. Not really knowing where it's going. Um, but I'm appalling at the net, right? I mean, you know, at the standard volley, you know, the, the really annoying bit is... Is I'm really good at the sort of touch volley that people are like, oh, how'd you do that? But the one that's just sort of head height, that all you have to do is swat away, the number of those that I shank into the fence, I'm telling you. And I don't understand why. There's no comparison for that. No, I can't think of too many other players that... Who's a a good tennis player who's absolutely (laughs) appalling at the net? Somebody like that. That's who I am. Um, There definitely are candidates. The other thing is, and I'm giving away way too much information here ahead of our rematch, which we, we are going to have, is that um, I cut a quite intimidating figure, as you can imagine, when I'm marauding towards the net. The problem is the moment the opponent realises that if they lob me, which seems counterintuitive given that I'm six foot seven, if they lob me, I am a beaten man, whether it's in my reach or not, <laughs> because my <laughs> smash is not very good. <laughs> is cripes yes um i i don't know who i i mean my style is very very boring by comparison i can't think of any you're a bit of a baseline basher really aren't you i don't i don't you're taking that offense you you get offended by that 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 is a bit of complacency (laughs) oh but my backhand's not very good uh, yeah, I'll t- well, let's move on. I'll take that. Yeah, she, I looked like her quite a lot when I was younger. She sort of well. just cracks the thing. Um, I have a really dodgy ball toss. Who has a dodgy ball toss? Elena Dementieva didn't have a good ball toss, mm, did she? Yeah, you do, you do drop it a number of times, and really you should be losing the point at that point. At which point, if, you know, if, <laughs> if we think about that match, really I should have won then because you did a number of those. And that's, you know, it's not really on, is it? Tell that to Pat Rafter. Yeah, but he had that... Sorry, mate. Sorry, I was mate. always very polite about it. Uh, I was Pat Rafter-esque about uh, it. Uh, Leo would also like to know, in pursuing your careers in tennis, uh, I first at first read that as tennis careers and thought uh, Leo was completely misguided. Trying to be as nice. To, uh, as to uh, David and I's level of ability. But no, she said, in pursuing your careers in tennis, what were the biggest challenges you have to overcome and what have you learnt that you could share with listeners looking to you for inspiration? David, elder statesman. All right. <laughs> Over to you. Um, well, God, I don't want to sound... Um, believe in, believe you can do it. Uh, if you really, if you've got the, if you've got the basics, I mean, the, the thing is, you, you can't have no ability and, and still. Yeah, the just... problem with believe in yourself as a as a piece of advice. It's not that I I don't endorse it. It's that that leads to people on the X Factor going, I'll show them, <laughs> I'll show them, I'll be back, I'll I'll have a number one album. 
<laughs> but you're not going to, are you, mate? Because you can't sing. <laughs> yes. Make sure you've got like a base and level. And that's of... someone that's been told relentlessly to, to believe in themselves. Yes, that's true. That, that's true. <laughs> However... Uh, Have uh, talent and uh, believe in yourself. <laughs> believe in that talent. Has anybody read my blog uh, from the US Open last year will attest. Um, I did go through a... A teenage, late teenage, early 20s crisis of being just a complete loser. Um, and therefore, once you stop being a loser, um, you just need to be giving yourself sufficient chance to, to go and prove what you can do. Uh, and, uh, and what I mean by that is, yeah, if you, if you do think you've got talent in an area and you are really keen on following that dream, do it. You know, don't talk yourself out of it. But, yeah, it's a fine line. It is a fine line because it's it's a career that requires a heck of a lot of a commitment. Uh, you know, both you and I work for free to start with, to you know, to, to get our foots in the door. And, you know, you, you've... Yeah, it it has to be something you're completely committed to and that you believe you're going to succeed at. Um, I mean, yeah, I haven't written my blog yet because... Um, yeah. Because... I, I don't know why, um, but uh, when I do, um, I, I know what I'm going to write it about, and I'll, I'll share with you a, a difficult period in my career where I, I left tennis and, and journalism and broadcasting altogether, and I completely lost my way. Um, and um, yeah, don't, don't don't worry if you do lose your way. Um, would would be my advice because you can you can find it again. Um, but more of that in a blog coming to you soon-ish. One day. Soon-ish. Um, it's because I, I want to do it justice and do it properly because it's very personal um, and that requires time and energy and um, I like napping quite a lot. I can definitely <laughs> attest to that. Um, what was that? How yes, that's another piece of advice. Naps are life-changing. Yeah. What was, that, how, what was that world record of sleep that you were telling me about earlier before we came on air? The other day, I, uh, I forgot to set an alarm, which is very unusual for me, but I just, for some reason, I completely forgot. Or Actually, no, I think I accidentally inputted PM rather than AM, so I had my alarm set for, for 8 PM. Very helpful. Um, and I slept at 10 to, one, 10 to 1. That is what... That is... If I don't intervene... <laughs> With my sleeping patterns, that's what my body is wont to do. You need to have a quiet chat with Magic Sleep the Cat. Sleep past midday. Ma- Magic the Magic Cat. Magic is the only being on this planet that sleeps more than me. Really? Uh, right. Um, bonus question here from Caroline. Uh, when is Catherine going to come up to the Midlands to record a pod in Birmingham slash Solihull? She's actually written Brum but uh, I'm translating to Birmingham. Uh, we have Costa Coffee and pubs too. We need postcode equality as well as gender equality. Well, um, she's got to be uh, invited first. I've got to be invited first. Uh, uh, and um, what, do you want the serious answer or the, the 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 serious answer is that David is down in London all the time. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> and I'm the one with the energy. You know, I'm not, yeah. the one, I'm not the one who's napping until one in the afternoon. But the other answer is, if if that was what was required to bring the tennis podcast to you, I'd be up in Solly Hole in a heartbeat in Green. Greg's, in the queue behind Dan Evans. <laughs> yes, we're all there. No, Greg's are also available in London. Yes. Yeah. But the other answer is obviously that I'm a, a terrible metropolitan elite London-centric snowflake. <laughs> Yes, couldn't have put it better myself. <laughs> um, and very, very quickly, um, on a last point, um, which it's a... Uh, Leah's included, she said, I completely understand, um, if you don't want to include this one, but in case Catherine would like to respond, Madhur um, Patel on Instagram says, I've been a tennis pod- podcast listener for a long time now, and so I've been lis- binge listening to some old podcasts in the Wimbledon, and in the Wimbledon podcast of 2013 Catherine did not support the idea of equal pay for both men and women my question is if she could comment on that Uh, I haven't listened to it back I uh, 2013 so that's five years ago um my feelings on it uh certainly have evolved um I don't think I didn't support the idea of equal pay I think that's reductive I think I was more hung up on the uh, lack of equality in format. I was more hung up on women playing best of three and men playing best of five. I wanted the priority to be women playing best of three or reforming formats so that they 
uh, play the same length. And then playing best of five. Uh, yeah, play best mm. of five, or change it. You know, the various different changes to format that we've proposed on both sides that would that would make it equal. That was my priority in order to then be able to um, fairly instigate equal pay. I now believe that equal pay is right, regardless. Although I still very much want um, there to be parity of format. Um, but my feelings on the matter have evolved with experience i've got a lot more experience of of the world and i've had five years to think about things and uh, you've probably noticed i do spend a lot of time thinking about these things um because they're very important to me and um i'm not ashamed of that i think it's it's good for your feelings to evolve on things because that means you're willing to embrace information and nuance and other people's opinion so if you if if your opinions haven't shifted remotely on any topic since 2013 then you probably need to self-examine a little bit yeah yeah including me um and also there is no escape from the tennis podcast archive (laughs) don't say that this much we now know (laughs) don't go back more than like i don't know a year (laughs) two years some of the predictions (laughs) occasionally people just say not aged well do you know what you said would happen at the 2014 us open and i'm like Nope. That is why David's completely wishy-washy fence city predictions like Roger Federer will take our breath away one last time. How right I was. You're so prophetic with yeah. your not not in your prediction of what Roger Federer would do, but in your anticipation of not wanting to look silly. <laughs> yes. Uh, yep. There is a man with a with a lot more experience of looking silly yes. than me. True. But, the, but I've got you know. How many years? 13 years. N- You've got 13 years of looking silly on me. I've nailed my colours to will enough masts uh, <laughs> yeah. that I've been made to look a complete fool. David, I think, with the wonderful help of uh, Leah Brackets and John, she only mentions her husband in brackets, I like that, um, that has been our 400th tennis podcast. Wow. Have we done it justice? Yeah. Where will we be for our 500th? What about our 800? Eating cake, I should blimmin' well hope. Yeah. There was a significant absence of cake for our 400th episode. There was. Yeah, right. Well, let's go and get some cake. Yeah, let's go and get some cake and uh, we'll be back with you next week. We've been the Tennis Podcast for our 400th time, brought to you, as always, in association with The Telegraph and with Eurosport with our three executive producers, Triple S, Melanie Bowes and TennisBalls.com with La Manga Club, uh, who are still uh, offering their discount for Tennis Podcast listeners. T-Podcast 18 uh, is the code to enter to get that discount and... Uh, we haven't mentioned Charlie the Ferret. No, we have now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.